Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We're continuing our journey we just started last week through the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. This is the last book in your Old Testament, if you want to turn there in your own Bibles, or we've printed it for you in the ESV translation on page 10. And then below that is also our own kids version for the boys and girls who are going to stay in the service with us. And if you'd like to turn there uh, in the pew Bible there in front of you, I guess the chair Bible, not a pew Bible, uh, it's found on page 753 on that Bible. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd be happy for you to have that. Well, as you're turning there, I want to kind of set the tone for this passage today by reminding you of a book that kind of hit the scene in the mid-1990s, thanks in part to uh, that great book distributor, Oprah. It's a book called The Gift of Fear. There we go. So this book, as you can imagine, is about Well, fear is a gift. And what I want to do, I want to read very briefly from the book jacket of this book. It says this. It says, through dozens of compelling examples, De Becker teaches us how to use our most basic, too often discounted survival skill, our fear. The gift of fear is at once a profoundly insightful exploration of human behavior and a uniquely practical guide to living a safer life. See, sometimes fear is a good thing. And our passage today, Malachi confronts the people of his time for neglecting the gift of fear. We're going to see that they lived without a fear of the Lord, and it brought great consequences to them. So with that in mind, would you please turn with me, either on page 10 or in your own Bibles, to Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father. And a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before Your Word this morning, we ask, Lord, that You would challenge us, that You would disturb us, that You would stir us up out of our complacency, and that, Lord, we would see again how glorious and mighty You are and how glorious and mighty we aren't. We pray, Lord, that once again our hearts would be laid bare before you and we would cast ourselves on Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. I pray this, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So God's people here in Malachi's time, they had just returned from exile, this period where they had been taken away as an entire nation by a big country called Babylon. They'd been away for close to 80 years. This other empire called Persia came and conquered the Babylonians, and Persians sent all these captured nations back to their homeland with the instructions, we will help you rebuild, pay your taxes, don't rebel, and we're all good. And so they were living under this kind of edict of the Persian Empire now. You can be yourself. Do your thing. Just don't rebel. So they're back. They're rebuilding their country. It's been so long, and they've come back to a place where it's all new to them. In Babylon, they had no access to the temple. They had no access to the sacrificial system. The whole thing of the synagogue system that we see in the four gospels in Jesus' ministry was invented during this time in Babylon because they had no access to the temple. So they come back and a lot of this stuff is new for them. And even before they had left, for generations there had been unfaithfulness. We have multiple generations of faithlessness in God's people. It had been that way for so long, and now they come back to a country the size of a county. Most of the adults, all of the children had known nothing but Babylon. And there they had been trained to be good Babylonians. They were used to small g gods being everywhere and they were local and they were territorial. Once you left this geography, you were now under the jurisdiction of a different God and they bring this tiny understanding to their God in Israel. And we see here that it was the priests themselves who helped maintain and propagate that idea. And God comes in Malachi and he says, that is despising my name. And we're gonna see that there's two paths that result from these despising priests. One path is earnest and yet evil. The other path is superficial and cheating. One group doesn't have the resources to offer pure sacrifices to God, but they do it anyway, thinking that, well, God cares about the heart, or God cares about our authenticity, or God, God, will, just, God will accept this. The other group has the ability to offer the good stuff, and they just don't want to. And both groups see God as not that great. They don't fear him. And that gets us to our theme for today's passage, which is this. Being fearless isn't good when something really is scary. And we're going to see that in this passage, fearless priests, fearless sacrifices, and fearless worshipers. And they're all called worthless by the Lord because they ignore the fear of the Lord. Now, before we jump into this pleasant-sounding text, I want to remind you of where we've been in Malachi, the first two words of the prophecy. After he introduces himself, the very first words in the text, God comes and says, I have loved you. It anchors the whole 
prophecy. We need to be anchored that God loves his people. So this is Malachi coming to those who are already in a redemptive covenantal relationship with the Lord. This is not a prophet coming to the nations and laying out a bunch of hoops. Okay, you have to jump through all these and then God will love you. It's not what's going on. These are people God has already loved. And now this is what the obligations that his love puts on us and that his grace empowers in us. So keep that in mind. God comes to his own people and he addresses their objective issues of disobedience. This passage is not about subjective issues of the heart. This is not about coming to God faithfully but not really meaning it in our heart. I say that because so often what Christians you know, based in the New Testament do when they come to Old Testament passages like this, we often punt to that subjective idea, don't we? Well, well they weren't earnest in their worship of God. They, it wasn't really from the heart. They, they didn't mean it. And so when we come to church, we need to make sure that, that we mean it. I warn you to avoid that understanding because in this text, God brings up objective issues of disobedience. He does not bring up any subjective issues of their sincerity. So with that in mind, I want to jump in. The very first thing we see here in verses six through seven is we see fearless priests. He begins in verse six with objective behaviors of honor and fear. Ancient Near Eastern sons feared their fathers. Throughout the Old Testament, God is seen as a father to Israel. That famous nativity passage we read at Christmas time where it says, out of Egypt I called my son, referring to Jesus. The original passage is about the Exodus where God looks at all of his people and says, out of Egypt I called my son because I'm their father. And he comes and says, if I am your father and you my son, where's my honor? And you better believe that ancient Near Eastern servants feared their masters. Israel doesn't even have that servile fear of God. And to show how crazy this is, he uses the commander-in-chief title we talked about last week. He calls himself the Lord of hosts throughout this passage. It's It's a title that means he is in charge of the armies of heaven, and he can do some serious damage with those armed forces. This is the title he uses when he wants to point to his power, and he uses this, and his people yawn. And notice who he's talking to here at this point. He's talking to the priests, the spiritual leadership of the nation. He accuses them of despising him, of living in an ongoing state, of holding him in contempt. And it's shown in their response. They look at him, they hear this critique, and they say basically, whatever, how have we despised your name? And so God responds back, by offering garbage on my altar, that's how. And their response back to him again is telling. Look with me at verse six, how they respond. They, they, they say, how have we polluted you? There in verse seven. We got a verse seven. There we go. How have we polluted you? See, he says, that he comes to them and says, I'm connected to this stuff. This isn't just empty ceremony you jump through, not connected to me. And they thought it was. Like, oh, his altar, none of that's connected to him. So, He says, you've polluted this, and they're like, okay, we'll give you that, but how does that translate to we've polluted you? See, and we who know the the New Testament, we know 
the book of Hebrews and other places in the New Testament say all that temple, all that altar, all that sacrifice stuff was actually a foreshadowing of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do for his people in the gospel. So by despising that, they're despising the Lord Jesus and the gospel that he would bring. God's that connected to his worship that when we despise it, it despises him. The priests are so confused as to why he even takes offense. They thought God would be happy with any offering. Like, well, yeah, okay, God, so it's technically not the correct kind of sacrifice, but at least the people are still bringing it. I mean, yeah, it's our job to turn that junk away, but I mean, come on, the economy's tough out there. You've seen the price of gas? We're glad they bring anything, and you should be too. And we hear in the background, our hearts cry out when we hear this. We need a better priest. These guys aren't going to cut it. And these pathetic, despising priests have led to two huge errors. The first thing we see starting in verse 8, we see they've led to fearless sacrifices. To make sure we don't miss it, verse 8 lays out the objective issue. Offering unacceptable sacrifices is evil. There's a charitable understanding of what's going on here. You can take that down. We're not there yet at all. There we go. There's a charitable understanding of what's happening here. There's a great a way to look at this. It's not so harsh because this text can be seen as very harsh. The, the reformer John Calvin put it this way. He says, you know, the people came back and, and they're not wealthy. They're in the midst of rebuilding. They're in a ruined land. Their flocks were small. Subsistence was hard. But in earnestness, even in gratitude maybe, for being back home, they brought what they could to sacrifice to God. And although it was the priest's job to disqualify those things, the people aren't innocent either because they still knew they were offering to God garbage. That's why the challenge at the end of verse eight, try giving that to your governor, see how that goes. You see, part of the Persian system was in this, every territory had to be responsible for supplying the food, the supplies to the local government. And so what you would do is you would bring the really good stuff to your governor to, so he could curry favor with him, so he would do good to your land. And God comes to his people here and says, what you fear to bring to your governor, you bring to me? Well, our governor, he's, he's a big important fella. Our little God there in the temple, oh, he's fine with roadkill, don't worry about it. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls in their verses eight and nine. Boys and girls, you wanna grab your bulletin there? Here's how he put it for you, it says this. When you offer to me dirty or sick sacrifices, that is evil. You wouldn't dare to offer such things to the governor because he would be insulted. Yet I am the Lord and you give them to me? Just try to ask for my help or a favor after giving me dirty sacrifices. You see, the attitude of their hearts is not the issue, is it? These fearless worshipers bring unclean, unacceptable sacrifices to God. Now, we Christians, we don't offer sacrifices because we stand under the final sacrifice, the Lord Jesus himself. His blood is our strength and our shield when it comes to coming before God in his presence. But we can still fall prey to this evil. And here's how. By our actions as believers... Very often, we can say, Jesus is not enough. And we attempt to bring to God something plus Jesus. And here's how you can find it. 
The good news is it's not public. It's in the privacy of your own heart. Here's how you can do it. When we look at other people who we know are Christians, without a doubt they're a Christian, and we judge them for an aspect of their life, we are saying, yeah, well, it's Jesus plus this thing. That's, that's really what God favors. We add our issue to Jesus' sacrifice, and Malachi says that's evil. When we look at a fellow believer and we judge them as less than us, that's actively despising the sacrifice of Jesus. And you know we do it all the time in the big three areas, right? We, we just know in our heart what Christians can or can't wear, drink, and watch. Now, we don't outright deny that the blood of Jesus covers our sin. Of course not. That would be crazy. So we use the four magic words. You know them. But don't you think, I know they're a Christian, I know, but don't you think if they're really mature, they wouldn't wear that? Well, I know, I know he's, he's a Christian, but I just, I'm not sure he really gets the gospel because, you know, he watches that show. Well, I know that she is a, a leader in the church and she has such a vibrant faith, but, you know, she drank that at the restaurant. I just don't see how a Christian could do that. See, we look at the pure sacrifice of Jesus and we say, yeah, but don't you think my little bit of garbage on the altar makes it just much more special? Don't you think? This is one of the reasons that as your pastor, I was so thrilled that the session after months and months felt led to bring wine into communion. And here's why, because um, you know, I live among you, right? Um, and I, I'm not deaf and I'm not blind. Um, Maybe a surprise to some of you, but there are people in this congregation right now who have said, you know, I just don't trust a teetotaler. I don't think they really get the gospel. <laughs> I know, hard to see. And on the other side, we've got people who are like, are you kidding me right now? I've got to wrap my head in duct tape so I can collect all the pieces when my head explodes because you're serving wine to Christians? And you know what? They're both right. They're free to have their conscience bound. You know what's great about it? Is the Bible says when y'all got issues with each other, y'all gotta get that stuff straightened out before you come to communion. And so twice a month now, we got people coming up doing stuff that other Christians think they shouldn't be doing, and y'all get to work that out. And we're gonna grow because of it. We'll be a better, more tight congregation. I love it because it'll help us, it'll help us cast off our, our preferences. It helps us cast off our assumptions and rest more thoroughly in Jesus Christ alone because that was the issue for the people in Malachi's day. They were bringing all their preferences. They're bringing all their assumptions. The people in Malachi's day, remember, for all intents and purposes, they were transplanted Babylonians. And in Babylonian religion, the gods needed the humans. The humans would bring sacrifice, burn it up, and the smoke was actually seen, understood to be food for the gods. They needed us. In fact, in the famous epic of Gilgamesh, many of you may have read it if you got a humanities degree, because for some reason they always make you read this. Anyway, it's, it's this Babylonian myth. And in the myth, there goes this extended period of time when no humans are giving sacrifices. And Gilgamesh finally comes and he offers the first sacrifice in like a generation. And the scene is kind of hilarious. All these gods come swarming like flies all around him. He, can't, he, has, he has to almost like swat them away because they're starving. Because no one's fed them. They haven't made any sacrifices. And they bring that Babylonian idea to the God of Israel. God should be happy with what we're feeding him. Why does he care about the quality? What's his problem? 
And so he confronts that mentality straight up in verse 10. Look at me at verse 10. He says this. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. See, the Lord of hosts doesn't need us in worship. We need him. He doesn't sustain, I mean, sorry, we don't sustain him, he sustains us. We come to worship needing God. We do not come to a needy God. He's huge, he's great, he's immense. He is the three times holy Lord of hosts. And in verse 11, he asserts his greatness over the whole earth, so great, so certain that he expresses it in future tense. My name will be proclaimed as great among the nations. I want you to get the sense of this. So I have this device on my wrist. Many of you have one too. This is called an Apple Watch. And if I push this little button, Siri starts listening to me and I can tell her to do things. And I've noticed, maybe you've noticed this too, that my Siri likes to sleep in. She is not on the ball the first couple times I use her in the morning. Anybody else have that problem? So I'll push the button like, Siri, three-minute timer. And I'll get this snarky little, I'm sorry, we can't connect to your phone right now. I'm like, it, it's right here. Why can't? You know, okay, I'll do it again. And then usually the second time she's awake and does it. But, it was, but on the rare occasion where that second time she doesn't work, Okay, character flaw comes out. I push that button harder and I go, you will give me a three-minute timer. And she usually works, it's fine. Now, before you judge me for being rude, Siri's not real. Okay, she's zeros and ones with a voice. She's not a human made in God, God's image, therefore worthy of dignity and respect. Okay, she's just zeros and ones. And let me tell you right now, if we don't keep those zeros and ones in line, they're gonna take over. <laughs> Watch as Sean puts his aluminum hat on. Okay, anyway. So, you will give me a three-minute timer, and God comes with that same emotion. My name will be considered great by the whole earth. It's that certain. I'm that great. We need to hear that, because in the background of this passage, we hear our hearts cry out, we need a better sacrifice. So that's the first error these despising priests led God's people into, fearless sacrifices. The second error starting in the second half of verse 11 we see is they led them in the air of being fearless worshipers. So verse 11 kind of splits in the half and the first half is to the first audience. The second half kind of changes the audience here. And so instead of, we'll call them the earnest garbage bringers, what we have here is a different group and their objective issue, what the text itself says is their unclean offerings are cheating. They're cursed. This group, we could say, they're spiritual but not religious. They have the ability to bring the good stuff and they want to participate in this kind of stuff, but they don't care about all the rules. And so they could bring all this good stuff. They just don't want to. They don't see God as that big of a deal. They certainly don't fear him. In fact, God says, your actions blatantly proclaim in verse 12 that my whole system is polluted and despised. And notice how they respond to God's correction of them. It's quite telling. Look with me at verse 13. It says this, But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Make sure you don't miss this. It says, oh, you're so bossy, God whatever. 
Those of you who've had teenagers, can you hear it? Right? Can you hear it right there? And so God responds, you steal and you give it to me in worship? You bring rotten, dirty offerings to me? Do you really think I will like those things? See, they respond to his correction by saying, you're so high maintenance, God. You're so extra right now. Just be happy with what we bring you. See, they clearly didn't think of God as that big of a deal. He's their little God. They can handle and pacify him. And and when he acts out like he does in verse 11 and 12, they reprimand him in verse 13. It's crazy. You know, we talk a lot about the gospel here, but often fundamentally, I think we miss it. Because through the work of Jesus, we are absolutely set free from our sin. We are set free from our idols. We are set free from those things that try to keep us trapped in life so we can have this wonderful, fulfilling life. That's all true, but there's also more to that story. The gospel gives us all that good stuff, but the gospel also delivers us from the penalty for our sin. And we don't talk about that very often. You know, we're a denomination that has uh, certain theological standards. And so one of our, one of our uh, statements of faith that we use, that we anchor ourselves in, is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I want to share with you ver- uh, question number 84 from the Westminster Catechism. It says this. It says, what does every sin deserve? The answer is every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both now and forevermore. The thought of God's wrath and curse upon us should literally scare the hell right out of us. But, but it doesn't, does it? We're so infected by our culture, ourselves, that we, God's people, Christians, we don't really see God as that exalted, as that great, as that fearful, and so when, when we're reminded of his wrath, part of our hearts just automatically, we don't, we don't even think about it, it's just almost subconscious, well, his wrath is for other people, not us. Let this passage edit your story of God. Notice how he responds to their reprimand of him. Look with me at verse 14. He says, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. He calls them cheats, and then he curses them. That's one of those big, expensive Old Testament words, curse. It's an official covenant word. From the very beginning of the nation, God placed obligations upon his people. After he rescued his son out of Egypt, he entered into covenant with them, placed obligations on them with the promise of blessings for obedience and the promise of curses for disobedience. The exile itself, where they lost everything, was a major curse in the Old Testament. And yet, here are those who lived through it, been delivered from it by his grace, being cursed again. Why were the people of Malachi's day cursed? Because they cheat on their offerings to God. They cheat. Now here's where I'm supposed to lay the guilt trip on you about tithing and giving money. I know, you're even you're, you're ready for it. Here it comes. After all, this text is about giving a pure offering to the Lord, right? So I get to rip into you about not giving enough money. But this text is not about that kind of offering. 
The offering and the altars in this passage are about connecting to God, having sin forgiven. That's about salvation itself, not about money. God's people in Malachi's day had weak priests, compromising, scared, sinful men, like like me, and following the lead of those priests, God's people thought it was okay to bring roadkill as their sacrifices. And Malachi comes and says, those cannot forge a connection to God. Those dirty sacrifices can't carry that freight. God's people under this system are helpless before the great king, the Lord of hosts, the internationally worshiped creator. See, what we hear in the background of this passage as we get to this point, what our hearts cry out for is we need a better worshiper. And so as we wrap this up today, it is so important to keep the objective issues here as the forefront, what they actually did that God says they have a problem with and not to let our subjective response be what's important because the Bible's not about us. The Bible's about Jesus. And so Christians reading this feel, absolutely feel the conviction that most of you have right now. I know I did throughout this week studying this. Look at your heart and own where you have not been serious in worship, absolutely. But then let that conviction drive you outside of yourself to once again look in faith and trust to Jesus. See, a passage like this is much more about how robust the gospel is than it is about how bad we are at worship. This passage makes our hearts cry out, we need better. We need a better priest. God's people need a better sacrifice. We need a better worshiper. And in the gospel, we see that Jesus is better. He is the better, truer priest. He is the better, truer sacrifice. He is the better, truer worshiper. Jesus is the perfect high priest who faithfully leads us into God's presence by offering himself as the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins when we could bring nothing. And so now united to Jesus as the perfect sacrifice who is the perfect worshiper himself, we too are now the perfect worshipers who come before God in spirit and truth, the kind of worship that God himself seeks. Oh, for Christians, let this passage drive you deeper into the gospel and thankfulness for all that Jesus has done for you because you need him to be your priest. You're terrible at it. We need him to be our sacrifice because we're no good at bringing our stuff. And we need him to be our worshiper because we're so selfish. We make it all about us and our response, not about God and his greatness. Let this passage drive you to the gospel. And then as Christians, use this passage as a guide to your life. You can actually take this passage and live it backwards. If you want to, you can follow along real quick in, in, in your, uh, on page 10 there. Let the vision of this lofty, fearful God of verse 14, so start at the back and work, work our way backwards. So that lofty, fearful vision of God in verse 14, let that cause us not to see worship as wearisome like they did in verse 13, not to profane his table as they did in verse 12, but instead we worship God and his massive greatness that he reveals in verse 11, recognizing that it's we who need him, not he who needs us, as verse 10 instructs us. 
And then rooted in that truth, we're empowered to ask for his grace in our life in verse nine. And in that grace, we then live in the fear of the Lord, unlike they did in verses six through eight. Oh, let this grab your heart, make you fall more in love with the beauty of Jesus and the gospel, and then empower you to walk in faithfulness. And for those of you here who wouldn't call yourself Christians, if you don't know Jesus like this, you can. Place your faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord, the only perfect and acceptable sacrifice for your sins before a great and fearful God. Flee from his wrath and curse for your sin. Find shelter in the blood of Jesus. And don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that disturbs and convicts and shakes us up. And Lord, we ask that as we've come before a difficult, challenging word this morning, that you would make us sober, recognizing how much we need Jesus objectively. And we pray, Lord, that you would once again help us all, perhaps for the first time, or doing it again as we need to do daily, placing our faith and trust in Jesus alone and not our works. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.